0: August, Dereleth. August, Arkham House, and the Cthulhu Mythos. This is the first. Mm, the first of the month it will be an audio recreation of the first edition of The Outsider and Others. Uh, the first glimpse uh, the public gets of H.P. Lovecraft's skill as a writer of horror. Just like beer, so I'm not going to list what's in the episode, so I just hope you enjoy today's surprise. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out the brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every couple of steps. Soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, grip slippers so that you don't fall on your ass when you're skulking around the house at 3 a.m. All right. And let's see, what else do we have? We also have, check out Dave's Corner of the Universe every last Tuesday of the month, part of our monthly Cthulhu Mythos and other weirdness episodes, or go to his blog at davescorneroftheuniverse.wordpress.com. And yeah, I have to say, check out Dave's Corner of the Universe, all kinds of fun stuff. If you like role-playing games, he just recently made stats for Ambrose Bierce, part of last month's Ambrose Bierce. The last month's Ambrose Spears month. So yeah, check that out. And also help support the show by buying a shirt, uh, pgttcm.threadless.com. And we've got the cool Sothagua Latina Cha Ratfink inspired t-shirts that I just made the other day. And the super cool Join a Cult t-shirt that has kind of a hand-drawn Cthulhu with X's over its... uh, it's, I think you'll dig it. I think you'll dig it. Anyway, so also check out the show's merch table at pgttcm.com. I think it's uh, just labeled Shop. Or by donating a few dollars to paypal.me slash pgttcm. Special thanks to all of our guests later this month. And check out whatever they've got going on. If you want to be on PGTTCM or Black Clock Audio due to your profession or hobbies in academics, arts, or literature pertaining to gothic horror, cosmic horror, weird fiction, or anything that we cover on the show, go to PGTTCM.com contact and talk to me about stuff. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story Either a chapter, a novel, or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. What are you talking about? This month it's all about the Cthulhu Mythos. And Arkham uh, House Publications and August Derleth. Look for our podcast wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And hey, if you're one of our regular listeners who's not a big Cthulhu Mythos fan, you probably know someone who talks about that Cthulhu guy all the time. And hey, tell them about this month. Or hey, if you've got friends who you want to know more about the Cthulhu Mythos, pass this month on to them and it's going to be a lot of really good uh really good uh examples of hp lovecraft so hey um we got that going on find us on the web at pgttcm.com and black audio black clock audio on instagram twitter facebook black clock audio tales on youtube and we're also people's guide to the cthulhu mythos so just Google Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, one of those two, you'll find us. All right. Check out the website, uh, edited by Daniel Spitzer, produced in Badger Drift Studios in lovely North Portland, Oregon, USA. Recording by Garrett Fitzgerald.
1: Cellophase by H.P. Lovecraft. In a dream, Karanis saw the city in the valley, and the sea coast beyond, and the snowy peak overlooking the sea, and the gaily painted galleys that sail out of the harbor toward distant regions where the sea meets the sky. In a dream it was also that he came by his name of Karanis, for when awake he was called by another name. Perhaps it was natural for him to dream a new name for he was the last of his family and alone among the indifferent millions of London, so there were not many to speak to him and remind him who he had been. His money and lands were gone, and he did not care for the ways of the people about him, but preferred to dream and write of his dreams. What he wrote was laughed at by those to whom he showed it so that after a time he kept his writings to himself, and finally ceased to write. The more he withdrew from the world about him, the more wonderful became his dreams, and it would have been quite futile to try to describe them on paper. Kuranis was not modern, and did not think like others who wrote. Whilst they strove to strip from life its embroidered robes of myth and to show in naked ugliness the foul thing that is reality, Coranus sought for beauty alone. When truth and experience failed to reveal it, he sought it in fancy and illusion, and found it on his very doorstep amid the nebulous memories of childhood tales and dreams." There are not many persons who know what wonders are open to them in the stories and visions of their youth. For when, as children, we listen and dream, we think but half-formed thoughts, and when, as men, we try to remember, we are dulled and prosaic with the poison of life. But some of us awaken the night with strange phantasms of enchanted hills and gardens, of fountains that sing in the sun, of golden cliffs overhanging murmuring seas, of plains that stretch down to sleeping cities of bronze and stone, and of shadowy companies of heroes that ride caparisoned white horses along the edges of thick forests. And then we know that we have looked back through the ivory gates into that world of wonder which was ours before we were wise and unhappy. Coranus came very suddenly upon his old world of childhood. He had been dreaming of the house where he had been born, the great stone house covered with ivy where thirteen generations of his ancestors had lived and where he had hoped to die. It was moonlight, and he had stolen out into the fragrant summer night, through the gardens, down the terraces, past the great oaks of the park, and along the long white road to the village. The village seemed very old, eaten away at the edge, like the moon which had commenced to wane, and Coranus wondered whether the peaked roofs of the small houses hid sleep or death. In the streets were spears of long grass, and the window panes on either side broken or filmily staring. Coronus had not lingered, but had plodded on as though summoned toward some goal. He dared not disobey the summons for fear it might prove an illusion like the urges and aspirations of waking life which do not lead to any goal. Then he had been drawn down the lane that led off from the village street towards the channel cliffs, and had come to the end of things, to the precipice in the abyss, where all the village and all the world fell abruptly into the unechoing emptiness of infinity, and where even the sky ahead was empty and unlit by the crumbling moon and the peering stars. Faith had urged him on. Over the precipice and into the gulf, faith had urged him on, over the precipice and into the gulf, where he had floated down, 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 past dark, shapeless, undreamed dreams, faintly glowing spheres that may have been partly dreamed dreams, and laughing winged things that seemed to mock the dreamers of all the worlds. Then a rift seemed to open in the darkness before him, and he saw the city of the valley glisteningly, radiantly, far, far below, with a background of sea and sky, and a snow-capped mountain near the shore. Coranus had awakened the very moment he beheld the city, yet he knew from his brief glance that it was none other than Celephes, in the valley of uth beyond the Tanerian hills where his spirit had dwelt all the eternity of an hour one summer afternoon very long ago when he had slipped away from his nurse and let the warm sea-breeze lull him to sleep as he watched the clouds from the cliff near the village. He had protested then when they had found him, waked him and carried him home, for just as he was aroused he had been about to sail in a golden galley for those alluring regions where the sea meets the sky. And now he was equally resentful of awaking, for he had found his fabulous city after forty weary years. But three nights afterward, Curanus came again to Sellaface, as before. He dreamed first of the village that was asleep or dead, and of the abyss down which one must float silently. Then the rift appeared again, and he beheld the glittering minarets of the city, and saw the graceful galleys riding at anchor in the blue harbor, and watched the ginkgo trees of Mount Aaron swaying in the sea breeze. But this time he was not snatched away and like a winged being settled gradually over a grassy hillside till finally his feet rested gently on the turf. He had indeed come back to the valley of Uth-Nargai and the splendid city of Celephes. Down the hill, amid scented grasses and brilliant flowers, walked Karanis, over the bubbling Naraxa on the small wooden bridge where he had carved his name so many years ago, and through the whispering grove to the great stone bridge by the city gate. All was as of old, nor were the marble walls discolored, nor the polished bronze statues upon them tarnished, and Kuranas saw that he need not tremble lest the things he knew be vanished for even the centuries on the ramparts were the same and still as young as he remembered them when he entered the city past the bronze gates and over the onyx pavements the merchants and camel drivers greeted him as if he had never been away and it was the same at the turquoise temple of Hathnorath where the orchid-wreathed priests told him that there is no time in Uthnargai but only perpetual youth. Then Coranus walked through the street of pillars to the seaward wall, where gathered the traders and sailors and strange men from the regions where the sea meets the sky. There he stayed long, gazing out over the bright harbor where the ripples sparkled beneath an unknown sun and where rode lightly the galleys from far places over the water and he gazed also upon Mount Aaron, rising regally from the shore, its lower slopes green with swaying trees and its white summit touching the sky. More than ever, Caranus wished to sail in a galley to the far places of which he had heard so many strange tales, and he sought again the captain who had agreed to carry him so long ago. He found the man, Athibe, sitting on the same chest of spice he had sat on before, and Athibe seemed not to realize that any time had passed. Then the two rowed to a galley in the harbor, and, giving orders to the oarmen, commenced to sail out into the billowy Serenarian sea that leads to the sky. For several days they glided undulatingly over the water till finally they came to the horizon where the sea meets the sky. Here the galley paused not at all, but floated easily in the blue of the sky among fleecy clouds tinted with rose. And far beneath the keel, Caranus could see strange lands and rivers and cities of surpassing beauty spread indolently in the sunshine which seemed never to lessen or disappear. At length, Thebe told him that their journey was near its end, and that they would soon enter the harbor of Saranian, the pink marble city of the clouds, which is built on that ethereal coast where the west wind flows into the sky. But as the highest of the city's carven towers came into sight, there was a sound somewhere in space, and Curanus awaked in his London garret. For many months after that, Curanus sought the marvelous city of Celiphace and its sky-bound galleys in vain, and though his dreams carried him to many gorgeous and unheard of places, no one whom he met could tell him how to find Uthnargai beyond the Tanarian hills. One night he went flying over dark mountains where there were faint lone campfires at great distances apart, and strange shaggy herds with tinkling bells on the leaders. And in the wildest part of this hilly country, so remote that few men could ever have seen it, he found a hideously ancient wall or causeway of stone zigzagging along the ridges and valleys too gigantic ever to have risen by human hands, and of such a length that neither end of it could be seen. Beyond that wall in the gray dawn he came to a land of quaint gardens and cherry trees, and when the sun rose he beheld such beauty of red and white flowers, green foliage and lawns, white paths, diamond brooks, blue lakelets, carven bridges, and red-roofed pagodas that he for a moment forgot face in sheer delight. But he remembered it again when he walked down a white path toward a red-roofed pagoda and would have questioned the people of this land about it had he not found that there were no people there but only birds and bees and butterflies. On another night, Kuranas walked up a damp stone spiral stairway endlessly and came to a tower window overlooking a mighty plain and river lit by the full moon, and in the silent city that spread away from the river bank he thought he beheld some feature or arrangement which he had known before. He would have descended and asked the way to Uth-Nargai, had not a fearsome aurora sputtered up from some remote place beyond the horizon, showing the ruin and antiquity of the city, and the stagnation of the reedy river, and the death lying upon that land, as it had lain since King Kineratholus came home from his conquests to find the vengeance of the gods." So Karana sought fruitlessly for the marvelous city of Celephes and its galleys that sailed to Saranian in the sky, meanwhile seeing many wonders and once barely escaping from the high priest not to be described, which wears a yellow silken mask over its face and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery in the cold desert plateau of Lang. In time, He grew so impatient of the bleak intervals of day that he began buying drugs in order to increase his periods of sleep. Hashish helped a great deal, and once set him to a part of space where form does not exist, but where glowing gases study the secrets of existence, and the violet-colored gas told him that this part of space was outside what he had called infinity. The gas had not heard of planets and organisms before, but identified Kuranas merely as one from the infinity where matter, energy, and gravitation exist. Kuranas was now very anxious to return to Minaret-studded cellophase and increased his doses of drugs, but eventually he had no more money left and could buy no drugs. Then one summer day he was turned out of his garret And wandered aimlessly through the streets, drifting over a bridge to a place where the houses grew thinner and thinner. And it was there that fulfillment came, and he met the cortege of knights come from Celephes to bear him thither for ever. Handsome knights they were, astride roan horses and clad in shining armor with tabards of cloth of gold curiously emblazoned. So numerous were they that Kuranas almost mistook them for an army, but they were sent in his honor, since it was he who had created Uth-Nargai in his dreams, on which account he was now to be appointed its chief god for evermore. Then they gave Kuranas a horse and placed him at the head of the cavalcade, and all rode majestically through the downs of Surrey and onward toward the region where Caranus and his ancestors were born. It was very strange, but as the riders went on they seemed to gallop back through time. For wherever they passed through a village in the twilight, they saw only such houses and villages as Chaucer or men before him might have seen, and sometimes they saw knights on horseback with small companies of retainers. When it grew dark they traveled more swiftly, till soon they were flying uncannily as if in the air. In this dim dawn they came upon the village which Coranus had seen alive in his childhood, and asleep or dead in his dreams. It was alive now, and early villagers curtsied as the horsemen clattered down the street and turned off into the lane that ends in the abyss of dreams. Coranus had previously entered that abyss only at night, and wondered what it would look like by day, so he watched anxiously as the column approached its brink. Just as they galloped up the rising ground to the precipice, a golden glare came somewhere out of the west and hid all the landscape in effulgent draperies. The abyss was a seething chaos of roseate and cerulean splendor, and invisible voices sang exultantly as the nightly entourage plunged over the edge and floated gracefully down past glittering clouds and silvery coruscations. Endlessly down the horsemen floated, their charges pawing the ether as if galloping over golden sands, and then the luminous vapors Rather part to reveal a greater brightness. The brightness of the city Seliphace, and the sea coast beyond, and the snowy peak overlooking the sea, and the gaily painted galleys that sail out of the harbor toward distant regions where the sea meets the sky. And Kuranus reigned thereafter over uth and all the neighboring regions of dream and held his court alternately in cellophase and in the cloud-fashioned ceranion. He reigns there still, and will reign happily forever, though below the cliffs at Innsmouth the channel tides played mockingly with the body of a tramp who had stumbled through the half-deserted village of dawn. Played mockingly and cast it upon the rocks by ivy-covered Trevor Towers, where a notably fat and especially offensive millionaire brewer enjoys the purchased atmosphere of extinct nobility.
0: Hey everyone, thank you again for listening to the show. We're not done. We've got more Lovecraft coming up. But just a reminder to rate, review, and subscribe if you're enjoying the show. If you have any suggestions, you can contact me on Facebook at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos and Black Clock Audio Tales. So, yeah, if you have any suggestions, anything you want to hear on the show, you want to read something, you want to be a guest on the show, hey, are you in Portland and want to be a guest on Welcome to Portland, sit in the basement, and... uh, drink beer, and eat charcuterie, and uh, talk about yourself, hey, I'm down for it. Go to PGTTCM.com and check out Welcome to Portland. All right, back to the show.
2: Hypnos by H.P. Lovecraft. 2SL. Apropos of sleep, that sinister adventure of all our nights. We may say that men go to bed daily with an audacity that would be incomprehensible if we did not know that it is the result of ignorance of the danger. Baudelaire May the merciful gods, if indeed there be such, guard those hours when no power of the will or drug that the cunning of man devises can keep me from the chasm of sleep. Death is merciful, for there is no return therefrom. But with him who has come back out of the nethermost chambers of night, haggard and knowing, peace rests nevermore. Fool that I was to plunge with such unsanctioned frenzy in the mysteries no man was meant to penetrate. Fool or God that he was, my only friend who led me and went before me, and who in the end passed into terrors which may yet be mine. We met, I recall, in a railway station, where he was the center of a crowd of the vulgarly curious. He was unconscious, having fallen in a kind of convulsion which imparted to his slight black-clad body a strange rigidity. I think he was then approaching forty years of age, for there were deep lines in the face, wan and hollow-cheeked, but oval and actually beautiful and touches of grey in the thick waving hair and small full beard which had once been the deepest raven black. His brow was white as the marble of Pentelicus, and of a height and breadth almost godlike. I said to myself, with all the ardor of a sculptor, that this man was a fawn statue out of antique Hellas, dug from a temple's ruins and brought somehow to life. At our stifling age only to feel the chill and pressure of devastating years. And when he opened his immense, sunken, and wildly luminous black eyes, I knew he would be thenceforth my only friend, the only friend of one who had never possessed a friend before. For I saw that such eyes must have looked fully upon the grandeur and the terror of realms beyond normal consciousness and reality realms which I had cherished in fancy but vainly sought. So as I drove the crowd away, I told him he must come home with me and be my teacher and leader in unfathomed mysteries, and he assented without speaking a word. Afterward I found that his voice was music, the music of deep viols and of crystalline spheres. We talked often in the night, and in the day, when I chiseled busts of him and carved miniature heads in ivory, to immortalize his different expressions. Of our studies it is impossible to speak, since they held so slight a connection with anything of the world as living men conceive it. They were of that vaster and more appalling universe of dim entity and consciousness, which lies deeper than matter, time, and space and whose existence we suspect only in certain forms of sleep, those rare dreams beyond dreams, which come never to common men, and but once or twice in the lifetime of imaginative men. The cosmos of our waking knowledge, born from such an universe as a bubble is born from the pipe of a jester, touches it only as such a bubble may touch its sardonic source when sucked back by the jester's whim. Men of learning suspect it little, and ignore it mostly. Wise men have interpreted dreams, and the gods have laughed. One man with Oriental eyes has said that all time and space are relative, and men have laughed. But even that man with Oriental eyes has done no more than suspect. I had wished and tried to do more than suspect, and my friend had tried and partly succeeded. Then we both tried together, and with exotic drugs curded terrible and forbidden dreams in the tower studio chamber of the old manor house in Horry, Kent. Among the agonies of these after days is that chief of torments, inarticulateness. What I learned and saw in those hours of impious exploration can never be told, for want of symbols or suggestions in any language. I say this because, from first to last, our discoveries partook only of the nature of sensations, sensations correlated with no impression which the nervous system of normal humanity is capable of receiving. They were sensations, yet within them lay unbelievable elements of time and space, things which at bottom possess no distinct and definite existence. Human utterance can best convey the general character of our experiences by calling them plungings or soarings, for in every period of revelation, some part of our minds broke boldly away from all that is real and present, rushing aerially along shocking, unlighted, and fear-haunted abysses, and occasionally tearing through certain well-marked and typical obstacles, describable only as viscous, uncouth clouds or vapors. In these black and bodiless flights, we were sometimes alone and sometimes together. When we were together, my friend was always far ahead. I could comprehend his presence, despite the absence of form, by a species of pictorial memory, whereby his face appeared to me, golden from a strange light and frightful with its weird beauty, its anomalously youthful cheeks, its burning eyes its Olympian brow, and its shadowing hair and growth of beard. Of the progress of time we kept no record, for time had become to us the merest illusion. I know only that there must have been something very singular involved, since we came at length to marvel why we did not grow old. Our discourse was unholy, and always hideously ambitious, No god or demon could have aspired to discoveries and conquests like those which we planned in whispers. I shiver as I speak of them, and dare not be explicit. Though I will say that my friend once wrote on paper a wish which he dared not utter with his tongue, and which made me burn the paper and look affrightedly out of the window at the spangled night sky, I will hint, only hint that he had designs which involved the rulership of the visible universe and more, designs whereby the earth and the stars would move at his command and the destinies of all living things be his. I affirm, I swear, that I had no share in these extreme aspirations. Anything my friend may have said or written to the contrary must be erroneous. For I am no man of strength to risk the unmentionable warfare in unmentionable spheres by which alone one might achieve success. There was a night when winds from unknown spaces whirled us irresistibly into limitless vacua beyond all thought and entity. Perceptions of the most maddeningly uh, untransmissible sort thronged upon us. Perceptions of infinity which at the time convulsed us with joy yet which are now partly lost to my memory and partly incapable of presentation to others. Viscous obstacles were clawed through in rapid succession, and at length I felt that we had been born to realms of greater remoteness than any we had previously known. My friend was vastly in advance as we plunged into this awesome ocean of virgin ether, and I could see the sinister exultation on his floating, luminous, too-youthful memory face. Suddenly that face became dim and quickly disappeared, and in a brief space I found myself projected against an obstacle which I could not penetrate. It was like the others, yet incalculably denser. A sticky, clammy mass if such terms can be applied to analogous qualities in a non-material sphere. I had, I felt, been halted by a barrier which my friend and leader had successfully passed. Struggling anew, I came to the end of the drug dream and opened my physical eyes to the tower studio in whose opposite corner reclined the pallid and still unconscious form of my fellow dreamer, weirdly haggard and wildly beautiful as the moon shed gold-green light on his marble features. Then, after a short interval, the form in the corner stirred, and may pitying heaven keep from my sight and sound another thing like that which took place before me. I cannot tell you how he shrieked or what vistas of unvisitable hells gleamed for a second and black eyes crazed with fright. I can only say that I fainted and did not stir till he himself recovered and shook me in his frenzy for someone to keep away from the horror and desolation. That was the end of our voluntary searchings in the caverns of dream. Awed, shaken and portentous, my friend who had been beyond the barrier, warned me that we must never venture within those realms again. What he had seen, he dared not tell me, but he said from his wisdom that we must sleep as little as possible, even if drugs were necessary to keep us awake. That he was right I soon learned from the unutterable fear which engulfed me whenever consciousness lapsed. After each short and inevitable sleep I seemed older, whilst my friend aged with a rapidity almost shocking, it is hideous to see wrinkles form and hair whiten almost before one's eyes. Our mode of life was now totally altered. Heretofore a recluse, so far as I know, his true name and origin never having passed his lips. My friend now became frantic in his fear of solitude. At night he would not be alone, nor would the company of a few persons calm him. His sole relief was obtained in revelry of the most general and boisterous sort so that few assemblies of the young and the gay were unknown to us. Our appearance and age seemed to excite in most cases a ridicule which I keenly resented, but which my friend considered a lesser evil than solitude. Especially was he afraid to be out of doors alone when the stars were shining, and if forced to this condition he would often glance furtively at the sky as if hunted by some monstrous thing therein. He did not always glance at the same place in the sky. It seemed to be a different place at different times. On spring evenings, it would be low in the northeast. In the summer, it would be nearly overhead. In the autumn, it would be in the northwest. In winter, it would be in the east, but mostly if in the small hours of morning. Midwinter evenings seemed least dreadful to him. Only after two years did I connect this fear with anything in particular, but then I began to see that he must be looking at a special spot on the celestial vault, whose position at different times corresponded to the direction of his glance, a spot roughly marked by the constellation Corona Borealis. We now had a studio in London, never separating, but never discussing the days when we had sought to plumb the mysteries of the unreal world. We were aged and weak from our drugs, dissipations, and nervous overstrain, and the thinning hair and beard of my friend had become snow-white. Our freedom from long sleep was surprising, for seldom did we succumb more than an hour or two at a time to the shadow which had now grown so frightful a menace. Then came one January of fog and rain, when money ran low and drugs were hard to buy. My statues and ivory heads were all sold, and I had no means to purchase new materials or energy to fashion them even had I possessed them. We suffered terribly, and on a certain night my friend sank into a deep breathing sleep from which I could not awaken him. I can recall the scene now, the desolate, pitch-black garret studio under the eaves, with the rain beating down, the ticking of the lone clock, the fancied ticking of our watches as they rested on the dressing table the creaking of some swaying shutter in a remote part of the house, certain distant city noises muffled by fog and space, and worst of all, the deep, steady, sinister breathing of my friend on the couch, a rhythmical breathing which seemed to measure moments of supernal fear and agony for his spirit as it wandered in spheres forbidden, unimagined, and hideously remote. The tension of my vigil became oppressive, and a wild train of trivial impressions and associations thronged through my almost unhinged mind. I heard a clock strike somewhere, not ours, for that was not a striking clock, and my morbid fancy found in this a new starting point for idle wanderings. Clocks, time, space, infinity. And then my fancy reverted to the local as I reflected that even now, beyond the roof and the fog and the rain and the atmosphere, Corona Borealis was rising in the northeast. Corona Borealis, which my friend had appeared to dread, and whose scintillant semicircle of stars must even now be glowing unseen through the measureless abysses of ether. All at once, my feverishly sensitive ears seemed to detect a new and wholly distinct component in the soft medley of drug-magnified sounds, a low and damnably insistent whine from very far away, droning, clamoring, mocking, calling from the northeast. But it was not that distant whine which robbed me of my faculties and set upon my soul such a seal of fright as may never in life be removed not that which drew the shrieks and excited the convulsions which caused lodgers and police to break down the door. It was not what I heard, but what I saw, for in that dark, locked, shuttered, and curtained room there appeared from the black northeast corner a shaft of horrible red-gold light, a shaft which bore with it no glow to disperse the darkness, but which streamed only upon the recumbent head of the troubled sleeper bringing out in hideous duplication the luminous and strangely youthful memory face, as I had known it in dreams of abysmal space and unshackled time, when my friend had pushed behind the barrier to those secret innermost and forbidden caverns of nightmare. And as I looked, I beheld the head rise, the black, liquid, and deep-sunken eyes open in terror, and the thin, shadowed lips parted as if for a scream too frightful to be uttered. There dwelt in that ghastly and flexible face, as it shone bodiless, luminous, and rejuvenated in the blackness, more of stark, teeming, brain shattering fear than all the rest of heaven and earth has ever revealed to me. No word was spoken amidst the distant sound that grew nearer and nearer. But as I followed the memory face's mad stare along that cursed shaft of light to its source, the source whence also the whining came. I, too, saw for an instant what it saw, and fell with ringing ears in that fit of shrieking and epilepsy which brought the lodgers and the police. Never could I tell, try as I might, what it actually was that I saw. Nor could the still face tell, for although it must have seen more than I did, it will never speak again. But always I shall guard against the mocking and insatiate hypnos, lord of sleep, against the night sky, and against the mad ambitions of knowledge and philosophy. Just what happened is unknown, for not only was my own mind unseated by the strange and hideous thing, but others were tainted with a forgetfulness which can mean nothing if not madness. They have said, I know not for what reason, that I never had a friend, but that art, philosophy, and insanity had filled all my tragic life. The lodgers and police on that night soothed me, and the doctor administered something to quiet me. Nor did anyone see what a nightmare event had taken place. My stricken friend moved them to no pity, but what they found on the couch in the studio made them give me a praise which sickened me and now a fame which I spurn in despair as I sit for hours, bald, grey-bearded, shriveled, palsied, drug-crazed and broken, adoring and praying to the object they found. For they deny that I sold the last of my statuary, and point with ecstasy at the thing, which the shining shaft of light left cold, petrified and unvocal. It is all the remains of my friend, the friend who led me on to madness and wreckage, a godlike head of such marble as only old Hellas could yield, young with the youth that is outside time and with beauteous bearded face, curved smiling lips, Olympian brow, and dense locks waving and poppy-crowned. They say that that haunting memory face is modeled from my own as it was at twenty-five. But upon the marble base is Carven a single name in the letters of Attica, Hypnos.
0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the whole episode, and I hope you all are having a great day, a great commute, a great whatever you're doing. I hope you make your flights on time, I hope you get to your next destination, I hope you have an awesome day at work, I hope your yard work all gets done. Thank you so much for listening, share the show with your friends, Let everyone know about it. If you like the show, give us five stars wherever you listen to and rate podcasts. Tell your friends about it and have yourselves a wonderful day.